Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode's guest is John Quint. John is a neuromuscular therapist, functional range release, functional range conditioning, and active release technique provider located in Columbus, Ohio in the USA. John combines these forms of advanced soft tissue techniques to treat athletes and clients who have musculoskeletal misalignment, myofascial pain, and dysfunction. John is also the main performance therapist at Westside Barbell, where he helps all of Westside's athletes to stay healthy, reduce injury potential, and effectively and efficiently rehab any athletes who are coming back from injury. On this episode, John and I discussed many topics, including John's background and John's influences. What are the good and not so good things that John currently sees within the physical preparation and rehabilitation professions? And what solutions would he offer to the not so good things that he's currently seeing? John and I discussed the need to be as objective as possible with the assessment process and why it is important to try and remove personal biases within this process. John and I discussed the importance of variability to increase adaptive capacity, which is a critical component in injury reduction and the rehabilitation process. John shares with us his training and treatment philosophies. John talks about why he treats the person and not the diagnosis. John lays out his treatment system and gives us a shoulder injury as a case study. Why did John decide to become a new muscular therapist? He shares that story with us. 
John and I discussed the role that performance therapy could potentially have within the sport of powerlifting. John shares with us the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career in life. John shares with us his top resources and advice to all of the listeners. And finally, if John could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was a really great episode with John, and I hope you really enjoyed. Okay, John Quince, it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast, my friend. Just for the listeners, John, who may not be too familiar with who you are, just uh, fill us in on your background. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I very much appreciate it. Um, I'm a neuromuscular therapist. Uh, I'm located in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I my main method of treatment is functional range release. So I'm a neuromuscular therapist that does functional range release. Um, I'm certified in other things like ART, which is active release technique and other stuff. But the main thing that I do is I apply functional range release, uh, which is a method of soft tissue treatment uh, to basically work with general population athletes, whoever needs uh, treatment. Did you also, have you also taken FRC? Yes, I've also taken FRC, which is functional range conditioning, which is kind of the training component of that, I guess, I don't, massive system. So FR is for the manual therapists. Yeah. FRC is for the training component. But, yeah, I've also taken the FRC. Yeah, we uh, we had Spina over in May. He came over with um, – oh, he came over with uh, the uh, – his name is escaping me right now. Uh, is it Hunter? No, not Hunter. Do we? Uh, no, no. It'll come to me in a second. Like it's literally on the tip of my tongue. But Spina, okay. Spina was um, Dana. Dana, that's it. Come over, oh, okay. yeah. over with Dana. Sorry, okay. D- D- Dana, if you're listening, you're just it was on the tip of my tongue, and I was just like, <laughs> just, you're, you're there, like. <laughs> but uh, uh, so Andre and Dana came over, and um, they did FRC, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the course. Thought it was fantastic, um, yeah. and I definitely wanted to take. Um, Functional range release too, because I actually am, I'm a neuromuscular therapist as well, so I got trained okay. in, in European neuromuscular therapy. But I uh, here in Ireland, and um, so if you get certified as a neuromuscular therapist, it's in the European method. But if you go on and do the higher diploma, which I done, which is another three and a half, well, not two and a half years. So my total training in, in neuromuscular therapy was about four years. It's like the first year and a half is just your cert, and if you go on and do the diploma, which is our two and a half. You get taught also in the American version of neuromuscular therapy. So we had Judith Delaney and Don Kelly and um, Paula Briggs. Uh, they all came over to, to teach us too in the American version of NMT, as well as having Chado. Like, so we had Leon Chado there teach us the European, oh, yeah. the European version of um, neuromuscular therapy. And obviously he sh- awesome. showed us a lot of osteopathic techniques. Yeah, it was great. Great, so it was brilliant. So uh, I, I think you're the first uh, neuromuscular therapist I've ever had on the podcast. So... Yeah, two two neuromuscular therapy brothers here talking to each other. So, uh, but John, also you have an extensive background in bodybuilding. I I don't know have you have you competed or done a bit of powerlifting. I definitely you've done you've extensively competed as a, a bodybuilder. So maybe just uh, give us a bit of background into that and how you feel that background has maybe been beneficial to you in you as a practitioner. Yeah, so, I mean, I competed in bodybuilding for quite some time. I think I started maybe when I was 21, and I competed uh, every year until I was about 28. The past four years, I haven't actually competed. I work with a lot of competitors. My training partner, uh, he just turned pro at the North American Championships. His name's Seth Shaw. 
Um, he won his class, the super heavyweight and overall. So, I mean, I still train from a bodybuilding perspective. Uh, however, I don't compete just because, uh, I've been very fortunate with my business. So I've been just focusing on my business and building my business and not so much the competitive aspect of bodybuilding, but I kind of get to live vicariously through Seth and a lot of the other individuals that I get to work with as far as a treatment and training perspective. Great stuff. And is your main sort of niche, is it bodybuilders, powerlifters, kind of strength-based strength, strength, strength based athletes in terms of the, the people you see day-to-day? Yeah, so uh, I work at a private medical practice where um, I do the physical medicine. So basically that's my Monday through Thursday job. I work full-time there. I work on a lot of police, fire, first responders. Mm. We call them basically tactical athletes, SWAT, yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Um, and then uh, I work on my own, like Friday, Saturday, uh, on other people. So, you know, I work with Westside Barbell. Um, I work with a lot of competitors, uh, basically trying to help them in whatever support they're doing. So with Westside, a lot of people don't know this, but Westside has a lot more athletes than they do yeah. uh, powerlifters. I know that they get – they've been – it's kind of like a cognitive bias that's occurred with Westside. Everybody associates them with powerlifting because they've been so dominant in powerlifting. But realistically, I mean, there's NFL players there. There's UFC guys there. There's, I mean, we got throwers. There's literally every athlete. And so I think uh, that's the only downside to working at Westside is everyone thinks that you're just working with powerlifters when realistically it's a wide spectrum of athletes that are really trying to maximize their potential in whatever activity or sport that they're in. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was only thinking about that today, but it's something I've said and spoke about and thought about a lot in the past that people think that Westside is a powerlifting system and it's not. It's a sports system that, right. that Louis used to train powerlifters with, but it's a sports system that he applies to train all athletes. So, like, that's the sort of uh, differentiation people need to make in terms of Westside. But so, yeah, all right, Westside, uh, we've just mentioned there, and that kind of brings me into my next question, because no doubt you'll probably mention, Louis, but a question I always love to ask every person who comes on to the podcast, John, is in terms of your biggest influences on you, who have been the biggest influences on you, not only professionally, but also personally, so you can uh, you can dive into both aspects of that question. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of people along the way. I mean, I'd have to first start with Louis because, I mean, Louis, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge and being able to work with him on a weekly basis. The, the thing with Lou is uh, Lou has a lot of applicable knowledge, meaning he's read about it, but not only has he read about it, but he understands how to apply it, right? So, I mean, he can that's the biggest thing with him is uh, he's a very creative person in terms of seeing what needs to be done and figuring out ways to accomplish what needs to be done. So as far as, you know, from the training perspective, I would say him and then Tom Barry, who you said that, you know, who, yeah, I know Tom well. Yeah. So Tom's also from Ireland uh, and he's been over here luckily for us for about, three or four years. Oh, he's there longer. Uh, he's there since 2010, I think. I think he's there seven I, years. Yeah, okay. I think he's, I think about that definitely 10, <laughs> if not, like, he's definitely there at least six years, but, uh, okay. but yeah, uh, see, I, pro, a pro Kilkenny man, just in case any Irish people are wondering where he's from, he's from Kilkenny. Yeah. yeah, so we've been fortunate to have him over here. I was going to have to tell him time flies when we're having fun. So I work a lot with Tom. So Tom trains a lot of the athletes there, and then I work on the athletes from a treatment perspective. Uh, to basically help their movement capabilities so that they can perform the tasks uh, in a more optimal manner. Um, 
So I'd say from a training perspective, those are the two main people who have had the biggest influence on, uh, on me because mm. they've been able to steer me in the direction. If I have a question, if I don't understand something, Lou will say, hey, you need to go to this book, read this. Hey, you know what I mean? So it's always a the learning process is never ending. And that's the cool part about Lou, too, is, you know, Lou is always reading, always reading. So so that in itself has had an effect on, on me where I'm always trying to increase my knowledge, read, et cetera. Uh, from a treatment perspective, uh, it's uh, Dr. Michael Shivers. I don't know if you know who he is. Oh, but he is the, yeah, so he is the one that is uh, – he, he's the one that did all the training with me for the functional range release, which is the soft tissue component, the manual therapy component of uh, – the functional anatomy seminars series and he's had a huge influence on me so i took um the for manual therapists that are listening or people that are interested in the courses uh there's upper extremity lower extremity uh spine and then functional range assessment and he was the uh, individual who taught all those and he's really uh changed my thought process uh on how i approach treatment so from a training perspective, it would be Lou and Tom. From a treatment perspective, I would narrow it down to Dr. Shivers. And then, of course, Spina because it's Spina system too. Yeah, but yeah. As far as, like, the actual training, um, uh, you know, Dr. Shivers is the, the, the big one. So you'll, you'll see me throughout our podcast just taking notes or writing down thoughts. So don't uh, don't get too distracted just because I, <laughs> I, I often think the person on – well, like, because just for listeners, we're face-to-face here on video too – but I often think that the person thinks like that I'm I'm uh, like zoned out or something like that. I'm a, I'm away to fairies because I'm my my eyes are away from the screen and I'm scribbling. But <laughs> it's just because I'm making notes and then probably follow up questions. I actually do follow up questions with that. Have you also have you looked into any like uh, the PRI stuff? Has that stuff come across your radar? And if so, do you think that'd be something you might look into in the future? Um, it, I've heard of it. The, what does it stand for? Postural Restoration Institute? Or that's, is that that's the one, yeah. So, what, what, because you're actually, I know you're a busy guy, but a re, I'd say a really good thing for, for yourself to do, because you're so close to, um, Indianapolis, um, would be to go down to IFAS and visit Bill Hartman. Uh, he'd be great for you to link up with. Bill's an absolute, like, like, he's genie, like, but yeah. he's, he's well versed in PRI. And I just think that would definitely be uh, another definite. It definitely be another skill set that 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 would uh, definitely add to your to to, to your already very um, large skill set. I think you, I think you'd find it fascinating. But uh, yeah, like so, the post restoration issue. I mean, geez, we could have a whole fucking four hour conversation about it. But again, like anything, all you never want to just go down one rabbit hole and be like so so things just one way of thinking. It's just against it's something that's another aspect to add to your toolbox essentially. And then the other one is, have you ever looked into, like, the functional movement systems, like the SFMA breakout models and stuff like that from Greg Cook? They're not, not necessarily the FMS, that's, that's a component of it, but the medical version is the SFMA. That's personally what I would have been introduced to first in terms of kind of an, a, a, an overall system. Um, I, and I found it to be, a, at the time, like, it was a big aha moment for me, the, the selective functional movement system, which is one component of the, uh, the functional movement system. So they, they'd be two things I think you'd really enjoy. But Bill Hartman is literally just an hour down the road from you. So if you ever had a chance, you, you, you would love Bill Hartman. Like, love him, Mick. He's like, he's like Louis in terms of, like, he's like a savant. I mean, like, you know, not only like Louis, Louis is like the godfather of, like, you know, like training, well, you know, powerlifting, but also with sports training systems and training theory like bill is like a godfather in like the physical therapy world with like a lot of people like he's excellent and bill builds a former uh, powerlifter and bodybuilder so 
as well. Okay. Yeah, he reset. Yeah. He reset a book come out there. You can get it on Kindle for like four dollars. All pain. Uh, all, all gain, no pain. All gain, no pain. It's kind of directed towards like over forty year old men who are like all beat up and still want to like be in shape and lift. So it's a really really good book. He just recently released it, but he's a great guy. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, John, uh, next question. Love to get your thoughts on, as I said before we got online. So, in in terms of the the good and then also the not so good things that you currently see within the physical preparation profession, and also because you're a and you're muscular therapist, the rehabilitation profession. What are the good and not so good things you're seeing in both professions? And with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I would say, I mean, it all depends because everyone's bringing a different thought process to how they're going to apply whatever skill set they have to try to help that individual out. Um, with me, because I do the FRA, um, it, it's it's very like uh, I don't know how to say it. The bad part I would say is the assessment process. So I think a lot of people don't use a – they use a biased assessment process. They're looking for something. Does that make sense? So they come in with some sort yeah. of preconceived notion or some sort of cognitive bias or they have a really good skill set in, let's say, X. So they want it, – it's the law of the instrument. You know, if the only thing you got a hammer – if the only instrument you have is a hammer, you're going to see – everything's going to look like a nail. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that I see is that when people come to me for issues – they come to me and they're telling me their symptoms, but then they're telling me what they think is happening based off what other, let's say, practitioners or professionals, whether it's a trainer or therapist, have said. And it's just, I mean, I just don't go down the that road of cognitive biases. I try mm. to remove all bias and assess the structures that, and just see what they do. They either do what they're supposed to do or they don't do what they do. I don't guess it. If, if the structure doesn't behave how it's designed to behave, I just, I know that whatever they do with said structure, you know, whatever articulation joint tissue that is, isn't going to go well. Yeah. Right. So it's like I can come in and I can bring all sorts of biases. And then I think that's what happens is people have a certain skill set and they just want to apply that skill set to everything. Right. And so, you know, so that's the thing that I continuously see over and over again is I'm having to constantly, because I don't know, uh, well, since you've taken FRC, you know, the hierarchy is the joint. So you're assessing the joint to see if the joint, because that's where the motion is designed to occur. Mm-hmm. If the joint doesn't have the, if you don't have the prerequisite range of motion occurring there, whatever movement you try to do with that articulation probably isn't going to go well. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you can start to go down all sorts of different roads, whether it's you're not getting the proprioceptive feedback. So those range of motions don't exist whether or not you're not loading the correct tissues. So now you get a loading error, you get a neurological error, all this other stuff. So I think that's the cool part with Dr. Shivers is he ties it in from a complex systems perspective that, hey, the system always tells you what it needs. So assess the the system, which in the FR system is the joints are the hierarchy. So if you have a ball and socket joint and you start and you test internal external rotation and the ball doesn't move relative to the socket, Based off of the definition of a joint, you don't have a joint. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't so make sense. Like, so it's like the system tells you what it needs. So if someone lacks internal rotation, I know that I have to start to put them in a position where we can start to acquire internal rotation so that the joint can actually function how that joint is. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I definitely think given like your sort of thought process there, I definitely think you would like 
PRI. Now again, PRI like and the, the other thing too with bias is everything. Even even when you become aware or you can acknowledge that like you you have your own bias or everyone has an own bias and, and you could turn around and say I I am gonna try and put my bias aside be as objective as possible. We even have like subconscious biases that we're not even aware of that will still sort of cloud our judgment. So like humans will never be one hundred percent objective. It's just it's just not gonna happen because again we can have subconscious biases going on that we're not even aware of. Um, but I, I suppose it's it's nearly once we have an awareness of that awareness, it does help to a certain degree. But like, yeah. uh, but like again, like it's because when I saw Spin and I've talked to Charlie Weingroff to, um, so Char- I don't know if you know who Charlie Weingroff is, but Charlie, yeah, yeah, so like Charlie's a good friend of mine, and uh, we you know I was saying to him, I took he took Spina's courses and I've taken them, and he really likes Spina's cources, and he was like Spina says very almost very similar things to the SFMA model in terms of because the SFMA kind of goes either way, it, it but it brings it to the same place. Like SFMA is all about is it a joint mobility dysfunction or is it a is it a tissue extensibility dysfunction, um or is it or is it stability motor control? So it, is it either is it a mobility issue and then mobility breaks out to is it a joint issue or is it a tissue issue? And if it's not mobility, is it motor control then? And so it kind of brings you back to that default because again, as you said, if it is a joint issue then trying to bring like a motor control fix to that is just like banging your head against the wall because it, the, the joint range of motion isn't there in the first place. But just in terms of PRI then, like say for instance, and again, we don't want to we can go down the rabbit hole, but one thing for PRI, so the basing of PRI is like to see certain patterns that people are in, due, a lot of it due to like neurological sort of uh, biases, like most people are right side dominant, but a big thing is that the diaphragm, so the diaphragm is, is, is stronger and has more attachment on the right side and the left side, and then the lungs are asymmetrical, and all our viscera is asymmetrical. So that actually naturally has people in asymmetrical patterns. So one of their one of their kind of core tests that they do is like an overdraft test, but they don't use it to look at IT band. They use it to see if if a hip can extend an adduct. So they're basically trying to see is the relationship of the head of the femur in the correct position in the acetabulum of the left ilium. And if it's not, it's because the ilium's out of position. So their whole thing would be you could try and restore that motion in the appendage. But the fact that the whole ilium's out of position, like you're putting a cart before a horse there. So that's kind of like, again, it's just another, another tool in the toolbox. I'm not saying it's, for me, it's definitely not the only way. Uh, I think you, you, you seem to be pretty similar to myself that, like, everything lives on a spectrum. And if anyone's ever, like, shoving you down some dogma at one end of an, of an extreme spectrum, you kind of be like, oh, like, you know, be, be a bit wary of that. But I just definitely think, going off your sort of thought process now, that, Adding in like uh, PRI or even like SFMA, I think you you enjoy those courses. Even just like against to take little things from them, because uh, you're definitely a guy who appreciates uh, continued education. Particularly when you're around the guys like Louie who fucking reads all the time. Right. Uh, so so that's the not so good you're seeing within uh, within rehabilitation. So these sort of cognitive biases, particularly when it comes to What would you say are the not so good things you're saying from a physical preparation performance perspective? Uh, it'd be the same thing. I mean, it depends on what demographic you're in, you know, but when it comes to lifters, the lifters that I work with, uh, it's basically the, they start to come into this attractor state where they start to lose the functionality of the joint. That's so, so it's like the bodybuilders that I work with, whether it's my training partner or any of the bodybuilders that I work with, we have the Arnold classic here in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. So it's one of my busiest weeks because I'm working on all these guys before they step on stage. So, but realistically, you know, I don't work on any of their, I don't, I work on their joints to acquire more active pain-free joint range of motion. Yeah. Because I mean, when you start to logically think about what, 
what is best for the lifter. It's, uh, it's enabling them to acquire more active pain-free range of motion in his joint. Yeah. Because when you start to see how much weight these guys are lifting, their diet's on point, hydration's on point, they're not going to have a lot of issues in their actual muscle tissue, connective tissue, that whole entire continuum. Where they're going to get restricted at is within the joint. So it's the same thing. I'll have a lot of people be like, man, I can't contract my uh, rear delt or I'm having a hard time contracting this or contracting that. And then you start to test to see, hey, do they have control over this articulation? Do they have an articulation? Is there disassociation between one bone relative to the other bone? No, there's not. Well, that's the reason why you can't access that tissue, right, is because of it's a joint restriction. And I think that that's what happens with the majority of lifters that I see is they continue to do the same exercises or modifications of the same exercises. And then what starts to happen is their joint mobility starts to narrow down into those ranges simply because it's biological tissue. It's use it or lose it. If they don't go into those other ranges, they slowly start to lose it. They don't realize that it's an attractor state, and it continues to narrow and narrow. And then maybe they get pain. Maybe they get an injury. I mean, there's so many different interactions and components and variabilities that go into it. But that's the main thing. I mean, and – you know, if, if you see like my training partner, Seth Shaw compete, you'll see that when he goes into a pose, you can start to see the disassociation. So if he's in a front double bicep, he can move his scap, you know, his scapulothoracic joint has very good mobility. So he continues to widen out. That's the, that's one of the reasons why he looks really impressive on stage. Not just because he's tall, he's six foot one, six foot two, 260, but also because, I mean, he's got full joint mobility because that's what we're driving into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, it definitely does. And you bring up the term retractor state, and I'd be very familiar with Franz Bosch's work, and it makes sense. I mean, if you're doing the same, if you're loading the same tissue structures over and over again, as you said, you're going to get this use or lose it type uh, phenomenon going on. And then that's going to decrease your degrees of freedom, which is then going to decrease, like, you know, variability within the training, which is then going to overload some tissues and not overload other tissues, and then you're going to get injured. And then if you have a, a joint that isn't moving freely or if there's any pain present in that joint, well, then we know about like things like arterial inhibition, where the, the the neural drive to all the muscles around that joint is going to decrease. And then, in terms of like a bodybuilder trying to flex or activate a muscle, that's going to have huge ramifications in how how they're going to perform on stage. So, it makes complete sense to me. Um, yeah, because I, I, I well, that's one of the things that that I, I think of a lot because I wrote a, a post on it. But basically it's, you know, the conjugate method is, is trying to add variability, mm. right? So reduce repetition, add variability. But think about it. If you don't increase the capacity of that individual, you're not really adding variability from an intrinsic standpoint, meaning from an internal standpoint. You're just ca- changing the external demands. Like I'm in the business of increasing that individual's internal capacity. So majority of time, I mean, you probably have the same thought process. If someone comes to you and they have pain or an issue, the overlying thing that they're saying is, John, I don't have the capacity to do the demands that I want. Yeah, they don't have the, the capacity to adapt. Yeah, which is the big – and so that's the big thing. So that's when I start to go, okay, where does this individual lack capacity, mm. right? So that's why I try to remove the bias. I just look at what does this joint do. I know what this joint is designed to do. Does it do it or does it not do it? You know, if it's a limitation, let's say it's a shoulder joint and the glenohumeral joint. So we're just looking at that glenohumeral joint. If that individual can't internally rotate, I know it's probably a capsule issue. So I go in there and we'll start to use FR treatment to start to really load and change that capsule, try to see if it is a capsule issue, then reassess it. It either gets better or it gets worse. If it doesn't get better, then you know it's something else. 
So then you do another assessment. So the thought process, even though there's always going to be some sort of bias, but the thought process is always to look at what what is this structure designed to do? Mm-hmm. Does it do it? If it doesn't do it, that's where you can start to instantly add capacity so that that individual can bring a better articulation or joint to whatever motion it is. Yeah, Does so that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. And you're kind of answering one of my questions, which is going to kind of be like your overall sort of therapy and rehabilitation philosophy. So you've kind of touched on it there, but there might be some other details that you might want to add to it when we get to that. Then, so that's the not so good with regards to rehab and the physical uh, preparation. So like these cognitive devices with assessments, uh, lack of ability to adapt, you know, um, a decrease in adaptive reserve and stuff like that. What are the good things though that you're seeing within our professions? And and it doesn't have to be just limited to like a technique or a system. Like it could be kind of more in general to how our community maybe communicates and cooperates with one another. But whatever whatever way you want to take that. So what what would you say would be the good things you're seeing within the physical preparation and rehab professions currently. Yeah, so so at Westside, so me, Tom Barry, and Jason Gussick, we do the seminars at Westside. Uh, unless they're in town, then obviously Lou is also involved. But um, basically, what, I mean, it's what, a very – Why won't Lou travel? That's one thing I was asked. I remember Tom said, <laughs> he said, Louie will not travel. I think he, like, <laughs> is it, he has to be at Westside like every day. Yeah, I mean, he's just uh, – he's a creature of habit, you know. I mean, here it's off the topic, but not really in regard – it's on Louis traveling. But I remember uh, it was years ago, and uh, we were going – my fiancé and I were going to go to the beach. And I asked him, I was like, yeah, you ever go to the beach? He's like, no, I've never been. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, when was the last time you went on vacation, man? He's like, ah, oh, probably like in the 60s. I was in Germany, but that was when I was in the military. I'm like, wait, so you don't travel anywhere? He's like, nope. <laughs> so, I mean, he's just a creature of habit. I mean, that's just. What's the, the what's the restaurant again he goes every morning? I have breakfast with uh, there. Bob Evans. Bob Evans, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Every morning, 6, thir- six o'clock is he there at 6 o'clock? Yeah, he, well, he normally gets there at 5 a.m. and waits in his car for like an hour. Creature of habit. Yeah. yeah, he's a creature of habit. So, I mean. But it, it's been successful, so. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So go on, continue with your answer. So the, the good things you've seen, you were saying that you and Jason and Tom, and Tom do the uh, do the seminars? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a really good community, and the community seems like it wants to learn. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Right? So, I mean, I think that's the big part is, like, there is, you know, and it's even, like, uh, going to, like, the FR and FRC seminars, you have a large conglomerate of people that want to learn. It's just, I think, a lot of the learning that people need to be good at training or treatment is going to be outside of school from continuing education standpoint yeah. from people who are – and I don't want to take anything away from these institutions or anything like that, but I'm just talking about my personal experience. You know, I've learned the most from people that are outside of that academic education and are in the continuing education realm – because I felt I, they actually, I feel like you learn a lot of theory, but you don't learn a lot of application. And they don't really teach you how to think. They teach you what to think. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, being involved with um, the, the, the places that I'm involved with, that's where I've done my most learning where people can say, oh, yeah, I had this case or I had this individual or we found with these athletes or this group of people that this is what works. This doesn't work. This is why that doesn't work. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, absolutely. so it's so it's like there's a lot of I, – I just think you're going to – like when you can learn – when you can start to 
like when you start to have your general thought process in, and then you can start to recognize patterns where you see why something works or why something doesn't work. But that takes experience. Mm. And I think the people that teach the continuing education like Lou, I mean, who has more experience than Lou? Yeah. You know, and so it's like he's already made so many mistakes, but he's learned from those mistakes. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. They have the wheel. You're just starting to add, you know, your individualized thought process to this over this wheel. Just to, and it, that's what that's the good part of the community, yeah. I think, is. So the continued continue education, the sharing of knowledge and the, the kind of me- mentorship of others as well, like in terms of like Louis, for instance. Right. Yeah. That, yeah, that's what. That's what I think. So, John, you, you kind of already touched into a little bit of your sort of philosophy there when it comes to, to you know, um, therapy and rehabilitation. Um, but I'm still going to ask the question. So if I say to you, John, what is your overall training and rehabilitation philosophies? Like what are the big rocks that underpin the way you think? Now, I know you kind of touched on saying, you know, it's basically feedback. Uh, you know, you basically get the feedback from the system. The system kind of drives where you go with your sort of rehab. But also, maybe maybe moving on also from philosophy, maybe tell us a little more about your system. So um, so I'll tell you what, I'll just ask the first part of the question, because if I go on, it'll be too long. So just give us a brief overview of your overall training and rehab philosophy, and then after that, I'll ask about like your system. So we might do a case study of like when a client shows up, what happens from there, like you know, the assessment from the treatment on the table, through, do you do any rehab? But what would your philosophies be, first of all? My philosophy? Um, I mean, it's definitely an individual-based philosophy. Um, so basically that individual comes in, you're going to acquire the information from that individual on what their current issue is. Then you have to decipher what's noise and what's a signal. Does that make sense? Mm, explain, so explain, people, explain that. Yeah, explain that. It sounds good. I mean, it goes back to what other people have told them or what they assume is going on. Yeah, but the yeah. problem is there's no physical assessment to confirm or deny any of that. Mm. So it could all be noise or there could be a lot of signal going on. Obviously, you have to take in what the client is telling you. Yes. The client has an issue and they want you – like there is a huge verbal communication process where you're asking them, does this hurt? Does that hurt? What type of pain is it? Is it a pinch pain? Is it a tightness? You're trying to decipher what is going on from their standpoint. I mean it's their body. They know it better than anyone else. Right. So a lot of it is about trying to ask them the right questions and steer them, you know, away from what they've been told by others, which those others may have just been someone that they saw online or, hey, I read this article on yeah. WebMD and I think this is what I have. I think, I, I, yeah, yeah, I think a part of that, too, is because there's so much uncertainty in people's lives, particularly when it comes to like the big question of all, which is what the fuck happens when we die, which, which, which everyone carries around, whether, you know, some people just maybe meditate on that more than others, or some people are more consciously aware of it or think about it on a moment to moment basis than others. But the fact that there's so much uncertainty built into our lives, and particularly in the fact that we don't know what comes after life, like most of us try to fill our day with things that we know are certain. So where it comes to like the foods we eat, the time we eat, the times we train, uh, you know, we, we build up these habitual habits. And then even with our belief systems, be they religious, religious um, beliefs, political beliefs, ideological beliefs, but then in terms of like a diagnosis, if someone has like an issue in their body, it adds an element of uncertainty and it's something that they can't control. And when they get like a diagnosis, it's usually such a relief because they feel, oh, now I know what I have, even if that isn't the case. And as you kind of alluded, that gives them that cognitive bias, which then can make it very hard sometimes for 
someone like ourselves to work with them when they're like so gung ho. No, I was told it's a this bulge, or I was told I have sciatic, and it's like sciatica like goes down the back of your leg. It doesn't go up your neck. Right. I, don't know, I don't know who told you that. Yeah, right. but, yeah, but, but it's, it's, it is. It is funny though. Yeah, and I mean, even when people come to me with, even if it's the most legit diagnosis ever, I still treat the individual, not the diagnosis. Exactly, and that's a, that's a very, very important differentiation. Yeah, treat the person, not the diagnosis, or in medicine, you know, treat the person, not the disease. Because you, again, right. you, you know this as well as anyone. Um, you could get people presented with the same symptomatology, but the reasons behind that could be very different. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I suppose that 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 would be your philosophy there. So not that you treat the person, not not the diagnosis, um, right. and and then so maybe get more into the system. Then John, like I show, like I go in and go, John, I'm in bit. I did something to my hip or I did something to my shoulder, and I walk yeah. in. So tell us what what goes on then. Like do you do you take a history? Do you bring me through the FA assessment? And uh, you get me on the table. Yeah. And then in terms of like rehab. In terms of like stuff off the table, do you do that too with the clients? You get them out on the gym floor and send them off. Say, I need you to do this before you come back. And how how does that process look? Yeah, I mean, so if someone comes to me, let's say they come to me and they got shoulder pain, right? So basically, have them talk to me because I mean, a lot of it is they want to tell someone that they have an issue too. Yeah. So listen to them, taking the try and figure out what is noise, what is a the signal. Then from there. From the information that you have, it's going to kind of lead you to start to assess the joint, right? So then basically I'll start generally with the joints that have the most degrees of freedom because I know that I can add the most capacity to those joints. Mm. So it's the most bang for my buck and theirs as, as far. So if it's a shoulder issue, I'll start with the glenohumeral joint. I'll basically have them – I mean, and there's a ton of different ways that you can assess it. You can yeah. assess it having them do a car. You can see the limitation if they don't have real good disassociation between – uh, the glenoid cavity and the humerus. You can see if they're starting to compensate with uh, scapular motion. A lot of times what I do is I put them on the table and I have, and I'll take them into passive internal or passive external rotation, then active uh, external rotation, and then test uh, passive active internal rotation as well because it's, when it's all said and done, it's a ball and socket joint, so it's designed to rotate. So in my opinion, if you're going up into flexion, extension, abduction, horizontal, whatever it is you're doing, rotation is occurring there. Yeah. So I like to put the bone where you can actually rotate it. See if it rotates. You know what I mean? And then if it doesn't rotate, now you can start to say, okay, feel how when I go to rotate this bone here. So generally, like, if I'm testing external rotation, I'll put basically, like, I'll say I'll – put my finger on the coracoid process, I go all the way up to the chromium, then to the spine of the scapula. I'm like, this is your scapula. This bone articulates with your humerus bone, which is your arm bone. I normally don't, I just say shoulder blade, yeah, arm yeah. bone. I go, and then I can put my palm on the ball and I start to rotate. I go, do you feel how that rotation is occurring without your scapula moving? Yes, then I'll rotate it. Let's say that there's restriction in external rotation. So as I start to rotate it, now we come up onto a barrier. I go, do you feel how that ball no longer moves? So we now no longer have relative motion. This is the end of the glenohumeral joint of your functional mobility. Mm. Even let, let's say it's passive. This is the end of your passive range of motion. But then I'll say, where do you, do you feel restriction? And if so, where? Do you feel pain? If so, where? So now, now I like doing that a lot better because now I get to guide the individual and start to figure out exactly. No, I don't feel pain. Yes, I do feel pain. You feel pain. Where is the pain at? 
It's on the front side of the joint. Okay, so now now I'm starting to think dysfunctional arthrokinematics. Let me test internal, right? So it's this constant assessment process. After you get done with, generally after I get done with glenohumeral, I'll test the AC joint, see if the clavicle functions. So I basically go off what the correct arthrokinematics should be. So you have, uh, so it's like the first 90 degrees, does the clavicle uh, elevate? Or does it elevate? Does it elevate only to sixty and then start to uh, posteriorly rotate before? Okay, now you're getting an impingement. So that's the thing with testing the arthrokinematics of the joint. The joint tells me what they need, right? So it's like, and I'll say, hey, do you feel how that starts to posteriorly rotate on my finger? Yes, it's not supposed to do that till it gets to ninety. Mm. Oh, okay, that's the reason why you're getting a pinching pain in the front of your shoulder more than likely. However, we'll see if that's the case. So we'll normalize that ar- the arthrokinematics of that joint, retest it. Normally, if they've had impingement for a while, they're still going to have the pinching pain. But if the arthrokinematics are correct, we know that we probably resolved the mechanical impingement. Does that make sense? But well, the I, tissue that's been getting impinged may still be tender. So just just before you go on there, what would you have done to have restored that arthrokinematics? Yeah, you- so it all depends. But, I mean, from an FR perspective – so if it's internal rotation, basically you'll constrain the system to whatever the end range of that is. You'll do a pales contraction up okay. against that, start to load the restricted tissue from a uh, overcoming isometric perspective. You can use a rails. I use a rails too. It just depends on the individual, which is a yielding isometric in the opposite direction. Generally, I use both. And then that's the thing with the FR system. So it's like, I'll, we'll see. I just take whatever the body gives me. If the body keeps giving me more range of motion, right, then I keep going with it. You yeah. know, maybe three, four. Generally, I don't go to five, but it just depends. If I only, you know, like I'll have athletes fly in, and it's like it, it, I may have to go to five. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Right? Because I want to restore the proper arthrokinematics. Then after, and then after that, whatever tissue that's on, especially if it's joint capsule, I, I will hold it in that range for a minimum of two minutes. So basically just locked on, putting all that force onto the tissue that I know is restricting that bone, that bone, right? So in a normal joint, right, obviously the, the both ends, both whatever articulations are unrestricted, so they pun- function pain-free. Mm. Whenever you get to where you can feel that mechanical restriction in this case, if it's a capsule, then I really try to load that tissue to whatever they can handle so that it's uncomfortable but not painful. And then after that, the motor control aspect of it, I almost do like a quasi-pales. So I'll have them rotate up against that and start to actually work that joint. I don't know if you've ever read the book Peak uh, by, uh, I think it's An- Andre Eckerson. Have, have you ever read the book I Peak? I, I, I'm aware of his work, uh, but I haven't read the book now. So that's part of the reason why there's so much of a, of a background when I'm assessing an individual. I'm trying to have them learn how their joint should function, mm. right? So then I'll say, okay, we're, when we're doing that quasi-pales out of, let's say, internal rotation, I'll say, do you feel rotation occurring at that bone? Yes, I do. And then because basically what happens is it talks about mental models and how we have this mental representation of how, our, how something is supposed to work. And then whenever something doesn't work, it's because it doesn't meet that mental representation. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to create a mental representation in this individual of what should occur at that joint. So that then each time we're doing that repetition, hey, you feel 
how the shoulder blade is able to be on the table and you're able to rotate your humerus out of that position. Mm. I do. That is how the joint is supposed to function. So I'm trying to give them, and then on, and then it's a, it's a whole neurological thing. If you want to talk about motor control, all that other stuff, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because now they're starting to learn. So that's the reason why I take it, you know, I'll eyeball wherever that restricted range is. And then I keep taking it uh, after we acquire full range of motion. I take it into that restricted range and I'll really have them slowly contract up against in that restricted range so they can start to get all that proprioceptive feedback from that area that they may not have been getting feedback for we don't know how long. Just a question on that. If they are getting any discomfort or pain, how like how much is too much, or do you just back off until it's not painful, and then do a pails and rails on 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 that area, and then you know progress it over time as that pain might uh, diminish. You know, say if you say if you send them off home to do their bit of their own rehab, and you have a pails and rails in there around the joint range of motion. Would, do you encourage to just stay off that bit where the, the pain comes back, or like what's your thought process there? Yeah, so I don't ever load with pain, only yeah. discomfort. So. Basically, what I do is I'll have a person put tension in that joint because tension, that co-contraction, feels good in the joint. Mm. So I'll have them, let's say, rotate up at 10%, go to 20%. Okay, now I'm going to start to apply pressure against that. So then I apply the pressure against that, and they go, that's good right there. Okay. So they have tension in the joint, and then I start to counter that tension, and they go, that's good right there. Okay. So they're giving me feedback too. So I'm going to say, okay, apply 10%, then 20%. And then I start to basically rotate that that bone in the opposite direction to wherever they feel is an optimal loading for that tissue. It's fantastic. Yeah. Great stuff, John. So Does John, that make sense? Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. John, just a question, uh, I suppose, maybe I should ask when you went in your background. What got you into neuromuscular therapy and wanted to become a therapist? Yeah, so I went to school for exercise science. I mean, that's my degree is exercise science with a minor in coaching. Um, and then basically uh, I became a strength coach. at. Uh, I did my internship at Ohio State University on the football performance staff. I didn't really care for that. I thought that's what I wanted to do, uh, and I really didn't want to do that. You wanted, so, a, you wanted a life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, And at the time I was having uh, real bad back pain. Um, you know, a lot of things were obviously contributing to that, you know, poor mechanics, poor mobility, just everything. And so, um, no one really helped me out. And so I went to, um, a neuromuscular therapist and it was pretty much the only time I ever got relief. Mm. And so I continued to go see the neuromuscular therapist and then basically he convinced me to go back to school for neuromuscular therapy. And then that's when I went back to school for neuromuscular therapy. Stuff, so I mean, that's kind of, I've always had an interest in it, uh, you know, in basically the human body. But the uh, that's how I specifically got into the manual therapy aspect and kind of out of the training aspect per se. Because a lot of the training that I do, uh, you know, is for someone to acquire a better articulation mm. or increase their capacity to do. It's not like. Like specific, I'm training this person and they're in the NFL and they want to do this. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So that's great stuff. Yeah, it's so funny because that, that nearly is everyone's sort of, you know, sort of background how they got into their particular um, specialty. So like Eric Cressy, like with the shoulder. You ever ask mm-hmm. Eric Cressy with the shoulder? And he's like, well, I was scheduled to have so- sh- shoulder surgery. 
And he was just like, and then I just got this idea of, I'm just going to rehab the shit out of this and see what happens. And he's like, and it just felt so good I got to cancel my surgery. And then he just like, right. he got, and he learned so much from that experience. And obviously, you know, yeah, he, he's and a, see the, yeah, you bring up a great point. That's where it goes back to. Like, those are the people that I go to for advice is the people that they they had they went through some sort of experience and it was a major learning experience. Like Louis, then, with, like Louis with his back. I think when you break yeah, your back twice and rehab it, you might know something. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing is that I think I think it's almost a blessing. Like someone in Lou's case, for instance, you know, a lot of people don't know, but Lou was a crane operator. He was a crane operator for like 30 years. So even when he had Westside, um, you know, he was still running crane, right? So the cool part about that, and like Lou and I have had this discussion multiple times, is I feel like when you go to an academic institution, like you don't get taught how to think. You get taught what to think. Mm. And so they put you in this box. But, you know, when it comes to people like, I don't know, Eric's all his background. I know he's real big on baseball and all that other stuff. But the cool part about those people is they were never put in a box. They're just, they're curious. They're just trying to figure something out. They're like, Hey, when I do this, I have this issue. I wonder what this is. Yeah. And it's a more organic, natural learning process other than someone basically saying, Hey, okay, this A equals B, B equals C, right? This linear thought process. I just don't like that method of learning. It never worked for me. Yeah. And it kind of turned me off. Too reductionist. You know what I mean? It's like, I like, I like a more learning process where you learn concepts and then you can see those concepts come to life with your experiences. I think uh, the opposite way. Yeah, I think a key thing, and uh, I've spoken about this with a lot of people who come on to the show, is always kind of making sure we know the differentiation between principles versus methods. You know, I think if if you don't uh, understand underlying principles – and before you start dwelling into like methods and means of things, you you know you're putting a cart way before a horse. So like you know this from Louis, uh, um, so you know this as well as anyone. Like how many times has Louis said read a physics book so that you can right. so that you can understand training better? And it's so funny because I've yeah. got I'm in the second year of my strength and conditioning masters, and biomechanics is one of our modules, and it's just like I'm like holy shit, training makes so much yeah. more sense now that my biomechanics well, my, my my knowledge of biomechanics has gone up. Yeah, so Lou's provided me with a lot of resources over the years, but the first book he ever got me is the Basic, basic Physics Physics, book. yeah, have it they here. Just, they, they sell on the website, and I mean, I mean, that's and that's the cool part about, like, when it comes to Lou, is like, Lou had, like, if you really think about how he was able to take all the Soviet methods and start to change them into more of a powerlifting, but then also with all the... I mean, dude, he's trained Kevin Randleman, Butch Randleman. I mean, so it's like UFC champion, fastest man in the world at one point. I mean, the list is endless. But the cool part is, is like, think about it. So Lou had this experience of training basically on linear linear progression. And he, got, he kept getting injured and injured and injured and injured. And those injuries is what drove him to be like, there has to be another way, mm. right? And then that's when he started getting basically the manuals from the Soviets and all that other stuff. But if he didn't have the experience before of basically continually injuring himself, he would have never had to look for it. And that's the thing with, I guess this is another big, another big thing that I don't care for, right? It's like I love working with guys in the UFC, wrestlers, all that other stuff, especially the coaches, because they all do it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's yeah. like they understand it. So it's like they have a much better way of articulating what's going on. Then let's say a football coach that's like 400 pounds 
that lifted back in the 70s and hasn't lifted since. It's, you know uh, I, mean? the, I, I don't know if you, um, if you know, you probably do, you know, Paul check, you know, Paul check. Yeah. So I don't uh, know personally, but it, yeah, I know you know, um, so I, I've interviewed Paul twice and we communicated and, and he, from, from an, a sort of indirect perspective, he's been a big influence on me. Uh, I think he's great. I love all the crazy shit he talks about because I'm mad into all that crazy shit. Uh, but uh, he said a really good thing one day, and he or he brought up this very good concept, and it kind of goes off what you're saying. He says there's education and there's experience, and they live on a spectrum. And he's like, education is where you you have the book smarts. You can recite, you can retain, you can recall. People say, oh, he's a genius, that guy. You ever talked to him? But he's no experience. He's so, and his example is the fat nutritionist. Uh, you know what I mean? So that would be one example. Or as you're saying, all the way coach there. Then he says you have the other person who's all the experience. They have the feel. They have the touch. You know, they're more, but like, you know, it's an emotional aspect. Mm. You know, they, they just have the feel for it. But don't ask them to explain the science behind it. And he's like, obviously, you want the best of both worlds. So that right. goes back to, like, the education and experience. You get these people. I would be a little more guilty of this myself. I'm a little more towards attaining knowledge and not, and not acting on it enough. So I def it's, that's definitely just a, a makeup of my yeah. my archetype. I just need to put into action more of what I already know. Maybe it's a case of you know I suppose you see an awful lot of people who are perfectionists too. You know they let perfection get in the way of progress, and that's something I keep saying to myself: don't let perfection get in the way of progress. Just fucking do it. So right. yeah, you you want the best of both worlds. And it's a great saying. My my very first mentor in all of this, in all of like physical preparation or rehab or nutrition or functional medicine or just fucking like personal spiritual my very first mentor was a, a coach called martina mccarty and she actually uh, ran for or sorry not ran excuse me sprinted there's a difference uh she sprinted for ireland in the 2000 olympics in sydney in the 4x400 but she probably said a very one of the most profound things to me one day uh you know yeah because you always hear knowledge is power knowledge is power she turned around to me one day and she's like you, you do know knowledge is not power and i was really like but but, and like I was a young coach, I was reading everything. She's like, but knowledge is power. And she's like, no, no, no. She's like, applied knowledge is power. And she's like, yeah, that's that, good. That's a big difference. So yeah. it's about getting that knowledge and putting it into action. And Tony Robbins talks about it all the time. He's like, that's the difference between true mastery. Like people take that knowledge and then they put it into action. He's like, that's where true mastery comes from. So like, you know, right. in terms of like Louis, there, he didn't just like read these books and go. I think this could be the system or theoretical thing he just wrote and said, I've thought about this. We've never done it. Like, he's like, he put it the action, like, well, and then this whole system came from there, you know? So. Right. Yeah. And so that's the big thing, man, that I see in the community. It's like the same thing, you know, like I'm real big, like, I guess the big thing that I work on is like trying to really optimize the individual's lifting mechanics. Mm. So let's say after they acquire all the prerequisites that they need, so they want to squat and they want to be able to be really efficient in how they squat. Then it's how to actually apply, you know what I mean? So then it's like, okay, here's is what your thought process should be when you're in the eccentric phase of a full range of motion squat. Here's what the thought process should be on the concentric phase and really teaching that individual how to do it. I mean, uh, that is, that's what I really enjoy doing, not so much the training programming. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, actually, that actually brings me into to questions. So I, I have two more questions kind of uh, related to like, rehab here and then we're just going to finish up with some like quick fire rounds like you know books you're reading resources and stuff like that but yeah. the question i want to ask I, I interned at altus i don't know if you're familiar with altus 
So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. so Stu McMillan, Dan Faf, uh, Andreas yeah. Beam, you know, so, and uh, Stu was obviously uh, Andre DeGrasse's coach, and then Dan is like like a fucking god. But, you know what I mean? Nine, nine Olympic mm-hmm. medalists, and you know, trained Donovan Bailey to gold, and 100, and Rutherford's coach. Uh, but down there, they're huge on performance therapy. So, like, you know, uh, having trackside therapy at every training session at meets, and they're very quick on getting these quick neural inputs to see if they can make a, a very fast change in the performance output of their athletes, uh, depending on what they're doing, that they be it blocks or be it, like, uh, max velocity runs or speed endurance or whatever it is. But, you know, putting these neural inputs from a therapy standpoint to get a quick performance benefit. Um, and, like... I've always tried to see could that model fit into other models. So like I can't see that like working as well maybe in a team based sport. Like say for instance it wouldn't work here in Ireland like where like we got like teams of like thirty guys and it's a freezing cold night in the middle of November it just wouldn't work. But uh, whereas maybe like a sport like powerlifting it would because in powerlifting you know you do your squat you can watch and it's slower so you can watch it and you can say oh I think there's something going on here and you can do a quick adjustment quick mobilization and you'll have the respiratory time to do it. So my question to you then, John, was do you think performance therapy is something that could become very big within elite powerlifting? Because I, I, I think it's 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 definitely something that hasn't been explored enough. In terms of like, I could see like a, a case where you have your top powerlifters and every train session the therapist is actually there. Like so at Altus when the sprinters came, the therapist dealt with them the second they came in, they washed them warm up, was there anything off in the warm up, do a bit of this, do a bit of that, go, and then the, the athlete would go off and do their do their set or the repetition, whatever they're doing at the accelerations, whatnot. So I can see a case in power where someone comes in, say it's a max effort day, you know, you're looking at them warming up, you know, whatever sort of little kind of check marks you have, they go hit their first rep on their, their working, you know, you're watching their warm up sets in the warm up. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, maybe that hip, maybe that ankle, do a little bit of that. Okay, looks better in the warm up. Then they hit their first max effort. You're like, yeah, how did that feel? I think still need a little more there. So basically I'm thinking, Ask, do you think that that could be a, a future model going forward and that like a therapist and the coach and the and the athlete are going to be hand in hand together working hand in hand together on the floor like in, in the gym it should be 100 percent. i mean clearly that model works for that specific thing it's just finding how to tweak that model for mm. said task or yeah. athletic yeah yeah the thing like, my thought process is, like, with all the individuals that I work with that I also help with their mechanics, is I know, based off of the physical assessment, what their passive and active range of motion is, yeah. what, that, what that gap is. So, like, let's say, for instance, like, my training partner, he has 50 degrees of active internal rotation of his hip joint. So he does not lack any hip mobility whatsoever Mm -hmm. so from a standpoint when i see him squatting and let's say his feet are coming like let's say it i just don't like assessing movement and then making assumptions based off that movement because oh yeah yeah you want to you want to break that well you don't know like you're looking at that's yeah i know what you're saying you see it all the time you need to break yeah yeah, so so it's like i know what his components Mm. that have to perform that task I know what their capacity is, mm-hmm. so I can see, like, okay, he doesn't have a lot of ankle dorsiflexion, so rotate your feet out just a little bit more on your squat. That way, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But the big thing is, like, when I know, like, like let's say let's say it's just a, a box squat, because we do a lot of box squatting. We do a, We basically do a fluctuating overload system. So from a bodybuilding standpoint, I guess it's kind of unique because everyone – 
over here, at least in the States, loves progressive overload, even though progressive overload, when practically, when, when it's applied, literally doesn't work. The only thing it leads to is increased tissue breakdown and injury. So like the story of Milos doesn't exist, right? So that's what Westside does. So basically what I did was Westside does a three week wave. Yeah. Well, we do a three week wave as well. And that's due to the biological law of accommodation. So basically for three weeks, what we do is we pick a compound movement that he wants to perform or that he needs to perform. More often, it's what he needs to do, not what he wants to do, because what he wants to do is what he's good at. But what he needs to do is what he's not good at. So we kind of have to blend both so that he's successful. I think we're all, guilty. Making- I think we're all, guilty. We're all guilty of doing that. Yeah, exactly. So, so, ba- so, so what we'll do is, like, when I see him starting to squat – and I know that let's say it's a box squat where realistically all it requires is to have like very mobile hip joints. Yeah. Right. So, so it's like if, if I start to see him tweaking one way or another and I know that I treated him the day before and he has, he has all the required mobility that he needs to perform that task. Now I know it is a motor error. So it's like, Hey, are you, are both feet in the ground? Are you spreading the floor? Are you pushing your knees out? Are you like, are you doing all this stuff? Cause a lot of times you just have to give. Uh, like from that, from like the standpoint of people that I'm working with, I know that they, like, I'm not going to have them do something that they don't have the, re, you know, the prerequisites to do. Mm. So a lot of times you're just fine tuning and tweaking saying, Hey, do this, do that. The setup that you're talking about is actually very cool because, so that's one of the cool things about working with Tom is Tom knows how I think. I know how Tom thinks, but Tom stays in his lane of training and I stay in my lane of treatment. And I'll say, hey, this individual, he has a huge discrepancy between his left and his right hip joint, okay? He can't internally rotate or he has whatever it is, right? So I can tell Tom that information, and then he can modify the training so that the training induces adaptations, not maladaptations. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that sounds sounds like you you guys kind of have that relationship going on. But I'm not physically there the most part for yeah, their training. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? I get you. I get you. Yeah. 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 But, but like, I, I definitely think the model could work because it, it works in models oh, yeah. where there's rest periods and there's them like whereas like in a team sport session it's like go 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 and then like if it's in the winter with a team sport whereas in a gym powerlifting long rest periods I think it, it could definitely be applicable you know so it's just yeah. so, it's just something I think hasn't been exploited yet in terms of the performance benefits right. of. It. But yeah, you're definitely right. I, I, love, I love the way you said, you know, you know the components that make up this person's move. That's a, that was a nice way of, of phrasing that. John, one more uh, rehab type uh, base question, then we'll just kind of do more quick fire round ones and then we'll wrap up. This has been an excellent conversation so far. Um, connective tissue health, so tendons, ligaments. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know Louis big on doing like a lot of volume, a lot of repetitions there and that. And, you know, you were kind of one of the few therapists because of your bodybuilding background, your powerlifting background, your relationship with Westside, uh, so I've listened to all the Westside podcasts because I'm a nerd too. Uh, listened multiple times. I've always loved your input in them. Um, uh, you know, you you kind of spoke about the, the importance to connected tissue health and, and making sure that they're healthy. And you know, you kind of said you've come across a lot of bodybuilders who completely neglected connected tissue health, and then they they end up with issues. What what's your sort of thoughts there on how to train and attain good healthy connective tissue again in terms of tendons and ligaments and whatnot? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I mean, I like accommodating resistance via bands, and I like speed work, and that's two things that bodybuilders don't do. Mm. So it's weird being able to work with elite level bodybuilders and elite level powerlifters. I can see the discrepancy. Yeah. 
So you see the muscles basically fail on the powerlifters, generally speaking, okay, at, at west side. You know, so when I talk about elite level powerlifters, the majority of elite level powerlifters, well, all of them, is the ones that I work at at West Side. Yeah, yeah. So you'll see where the muscle tissue is the tissue that doesn't have the capacity that fails. Yeah. Right. Whereas in bodybuilding, it's the exact opposite. It's always these tendinopathy, some sort of connective tissue issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And realistically, it's you know, Sif talks about in super training that the connective tissue is going to adapt at a slower rate due to the physical loading. I mean, it it all just depends. I think, I think that could be right. But at the same time, if you're not applying the specific stimulus that it needs to start to uh, hypertrophy or increase its capacity in whatever means, whether it's structurally, functionally, you're just not going to get it. Yeah. Right. So with bodybuilders in the methods that they perform repetitions, it's very slow, controlled. You're trying to fatigue the muscle tissue. So it's maximal uh, stimulation and fatigue of the motor units. That is the, uh, the objective. Right. And then from there, you're basically the majority of bodybuilders are then going to start to try and do exercises that's going to really push blood into those tissues. Yeah. Powerlifting, it's totally different. Powerlifting, it's trying to mobilize your central nervous system to fire all at once to perform whatever task it is. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Right? So what happens is because at, at Westside, you know, they're training with the speed days, and they're, and they're doing these fast repetitions. So, I mean, your listeners probably know this, but the muscle is an organ, and it produces a force. It expresses that force onto connective tissue. Then the connective tissue expresses that force onto a bone, and generally there's some sort of kinematic motion that occurs, right? So, like, when we're doing, like, the overspeed eccentrics, it's like you're trying to bounce a basketball. Like, if it's your elbow joint, you're, you're trying not to use your muscle. You're trying to just basically get that recoil, elastic recoil effect where you're trying to, to actually load the connective tissue and not the muscle. Yeah. And because the bodybuilders don't train in that way, because they're not specifically training for it, they don't have it. So that's the reason why you see them fail. They're, you know, they have tendon issues where at West Side, their central nervous system, so the, the functionality of their central nervous system can start to go more than how than what the actual physical capacity of the tissues are, the muscle tissue. And then that's where you're going to see basically those strains. I think it's because bodybuilding is so much about the muscle and I keep attention on the muscle that – that's why, you know, connected tissue sort of uh, auxiliary work has been so neglected. But, again, it's it, – like, I know what you're saying here. You're not saying that – so bodybuilders, people listen. So he's saying that we should just do, like – we should bounce everything up, but then we won't train muscles. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you you just you just need to add in this this element to train and, to, you know, add in this as auxiliary work to keep your connected tissue healthy. So it's, it's, not, right. it's not an either-or. It's just it's a deficiency in most people's programs that they're not addressing. Yeah, because if you think about it, so basically we do a three-week wave and a one-week deload, and the deload we're doing speed work. So the deload, so basically, like, do you have any? Have you seen any of the work that Tim Gabbett does, where he compares the acute training load to yeah. the chronic training load? Yeah, you spoke about this in one of the last podcasts. Yeah, but Tim Gabbett, is, yeah. he's done a lot when it comes to too. Like, it's like it's like the the porridge, you know, the, uh, mommy, daddy, and baby's porridge. You don't want too much because you can get injured, but you don't want to be so undertrained that you'll get injured. You want to just be just perfect. Yeah, so basically what we do is we're going to wave up for three weeks. And then on that fourth week, the deload week, then we can do more stuff that is like that's totally the opposite of what you do for bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. So it's more pump work. We remove the compound motion. So it's like we may do our, all of our speed work, 
which is like nine sets of three in each. Uh, for three sets, we change the grip up. Yeah. Right. We'll do that for chest. And then after that, then we'll start to do pump work nice, so that we're starting nice. to actually train that connective tissue. Yeah. At the same time, you know, it's funny once, and this is another thing, you know, in talking to other people, because, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to travel around, you know, people that don't have never done speed work, they don't understand how strong it makes you, yeah. especially if you're a bodybuilder. Because with speed work, I mean, you're trying to, if you perform it correctly and you have accommodating resistance, you're just creating a ton of acceleration. So then when you remove the accommodating resistance and you go back to your regular regular bar, you're accelerating more throughout the lift because your central nervous system has learned to do that. So you get a lot more out of your training by being able to add basically like these little thing, these little tweaks here and there. Well, at the same time, you're really going to start to load your connective tissue uh, or put more of the strain on your connective tissue and outside of your muscles. So, you know, that's the reason why it's like, so that one week deload, so people think it's really easy, but realistically what we're trying to do is we're trying to work on all of our deficiencies. Yeah. And then the chronic training of that three weeks, we're trying to give our body enough time to really induce those structural adaptations mm. because, I mean, you know this, you have to be, you have to be very healthy to compete. Yeah. So we're trying to be health, as healthy as we can while at the same time inducing positive adaptation yeah. not maladaptation yeah it's great it's you know you're, you're filling in that's it's a really nice sort of thought process it's just we are going there because you're addressing a deficiency but you're also allowing the delayed transmutation of the of the previous yeah, three weeks of training so it's uh, it's very very smart very clever so john okay. r- wrapping up here uh lessons learned what would you say being the 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 three biggest and like Everyone see. I think a lot of people think that the word mistakes is negative. It's not. The, the, the mistakes are great. That's how we learn. They're, they're feedback. So, what would you say have been the three biggest mistakes you've made so far in your career, and the biggest lessons you've learned from those mistakes? So, your three biggest lessons you've learned so far in your life, not just your career now. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at Westside, and I mean, the basic philosophy is to fail and to fail fast. So, and that's the same thing in bodybuilding. You know, I think. That's the reason why, like, you know, I have a background in wrestling and bodybuilding. And basically, like, in those sports, like the – especially in bodybuilding, I mean, if you're training correctly, you're failing. Like, the objective is to find where your threshold is and to start to be able to work through that threshold. Yeah. So failure to me is, is – like, I – it's good. It just depends on how you look at it, right? Yeah, it's perspective. Correct. And so I interpret it as something that's good. Uh, and so I think the, that's one of the biggest things that I took from bodybuilding as far as training is, you know, is, is one, you're just focused on yourself and you put the right inputs in. If you put the right inputs in, there's a process and that process will take care of itself. And you just focus on what you can control and everything else that you can't control. I mean, it is what it is. Mm. As long as you're putting in the right inputs, you're going to, you're going to see success, whether, you know, it may not be in the time frame that you want it. But you're going to be making progress. I think a lot of people give up because they they it's an instant gratification type thing. Oh, you said you said my phrase there. I say it all the time. That's the that's the so, problem. That's the problem today. People just like and again, it's if you're millennial, it's it's you know it's really not your fault because you don't know any different because you've just grown right. you've grown up in a society of instant gratification. Like I think one thing because uh, you're you're what, you're in your thirties, Johnny. Yeah, I'm 32. So uh, I'm 30. So me and you can both remember a world before like the internet and like uh, and cell phones. 
Like I actually, remember, I actually remember when like I used to call my friends like on a landline. <laughs> right. So, so like, uh, like uh, at least I got some appreciation for like you know delay gratification. But like uh, the, the the like the I don't want to say poor millennials, but you kind of get what I mean. Like it's uh, okay. like Instagram is just everywhere now. Netflix likes on Twitter, likes on Facebook, just like right. my like you know what yeah. I mean. My computer doesn't turn on fast enough. What the fuck's going on? It's like you're alive, man. You're alive. <laughs> Just be grateful right. for that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and so, so like, I look at failure as a good thing. I mean, because that basically means that, like you said, it's all feedback. Everything works on feedback loops. Yeah. yeah. So it's like anytime you fail, that is very important information that if you can understand how to use it, you're going to get better from it. So what, 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 uh, what would you say it being the, what would you say it being the biggest things you've learned from 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 any feedback you've got so far in your life? Um, I mean, I've learned a lot. I mean, it's kind of like Lou, you know, I trained, I don't want to say incorrectly, um, but I trained in a very not optimal setting for what I was trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But to me, you know, and that's the same thing. Like a lot of people that I work with, they're like, oh man, like, you know, I trained eight years this way. It's such a waste of time. I was like, well, no, it's not a waste of time because it's like you, like everything. It's all part of the process. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so you have to look at it like it's a continuum. So it's like, if you didn't train that way, you know, if Lou didn't train that way, if Lou didn't break his back, I mean, would we have a reverse hyper? Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, not from him, probably. It's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a little analogy on that. Yesterday, right? I, uh, this, this is, it'll sound funny, but yesterday, I fucking, uh, I, I, I love, like, a snack I love to eat is, like, Pink Lady Apple and peanut butter. And I got my Pink Lady, and it was, it was disgusting. It, it, there was, it just wasn't nice. And then I was like, oh, that fucking apple ruined my... I actually had it for breakfast. I had these, like, two apples and a, like, lovely peanut butter and a protein shake. And I was like, that ruined... I'm such a horrible breakfast. And then, like, you could be like, oh, that's going to ruin my day. But then, like, another voice is like, yeah, but if you didn't have that, you wouldn't appreciate next time or any other time you've had that snack when it was delicious. So it's a yin-yang right. yin yin yang of the universe. You know, you need yeah. daytime, nighttime, left, right, man, woman, hot, cold. So, like, yeah, exactly. We, you, you, it... Positive, negative. You, you wouldn't know positive if you didn't know negative. So, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the same thing. When I first started my bodybuilding career, you know, I did the Ohio State Championships. I really had no idea what I was doing. I was 21 years old. Uh, I had just gotten out of college. I didn't even know there was a novice class. I signed up for it. I get six, but then I get there. I'm like, oh shit. Okay, now I know what I got to do. So it's like I learned from that. And then that spring, I came back, signed up for a novice class. And, like, this is back in the day when, I mean, there was only one novice class. It wasn't divided up into light heavyweight. So there's, a, I think it was, like, 48 guys, 49. I mean, there's a ton of guys up on stage. I was able to win that class, but it's because I knew what to expect. And then when I took the next step from competing regionally to nationally, it's like I showed up at that national show, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> I should not be here. But at the same time, then that's what enabled me to see that, like, hey, man, I'm going to need to put, like, some serious – like, I remember coming back. I got fifth at Collegiate Nationals, and I remember coming back, and literally I knew I'm like, man, I don't have any time to waste. I'm so behind the eight ball training for that show literally the following week after. You know what I mean? Like, as far as maybe not physically, but mentally being like, hey, man, I need to reach out to people. I need to figure out what it is I am not doing because – I am not competitive. I mean, I got fifth, but like, I like 
if I'm being honest with myself and not delusional, like I didn't bring a physique that was going to win that show. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so, um, so I mean, that's a learning experience from bodybuilding. Another learning experience that I would say is like how I was talking about how I had trained prior to being exposed to, you know, all the information that Lou has given me. And then the other learning experience is, you know, I don't want to bash other soft tissue treatments, but for, for years I would treat people without any prior assessment. And if you don't have a prior assessment, you don't really know what you're treating. Like a legitimate assessment, like am I testing the joint, soft tissue, is the soft tissue is it a fibrotic issue, is it a, is it a mechanical issue, is it a neurological issue? And, and I think after, you know, taking the FR courses and, you know, working with shivers, I mean, it's really put me on a course where now I know, okay, hey, this is a neurological uh, issue. It is not a soft tissue fibrosis issue, so I need to be putting neurological inputs into the system to get the right outputs that I want. Whereas before, it's kind of like, you know, you take a soft tissue course, and then you're like, okay, well, I just need to figure out how to apply this soft tissue to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Where, Absolutely. That's not what's needed. It goes back to the law of the instrument where you got a hammer and everything that you see is a nail. And I think that goes back again to, like, first principles versus, you know, methods or concepts, because a, a lot of courses or continuing education courses are like, they're, they're education in techniques, but they're not education right. in like fundamental principles. So again, like, you know, you, we spoke about assessment and, you know, how important it is to like have a sort of system or a set of principles that guide your thought process rather than kind of, again, as you're saying, having this hammer and everything looks like a nail. So absolutely. That makes right. sense. I, I think, I think a lot of us like myself and yourself who, who are in the sort of, profession uh, and that we are and have the passion that we are have kind of gone down very similar journeys in in terms of our in terms of our growth and development to date um john what what books are a book or book are you currently reading right now um i always read multiple books at the same time i'm kind of weird like that add we all all have (laughs) so right now i'm reading sync the art of thinking clearly the selfish gene uh, I believe, I think that's pretty much it. Cool. Uh, in terms of your top resources, so again, this could be any, it could be books, podcasts, online education, courses, could be a person, uh, anything all, and it doesn't just have to be limited to training or rehab, it could be anything, uh, anything at all, like self-development, spirituality, whatever, whatever you want. Uh, I mean, obviously I would say Lou, Louis Simmons of Westside Barbell. Hmm. Tom Berry, and then Dr. Shivers as far as, like, the people that I go to when I have an issue and I need someone else's perspective and someone else's thought process on how to uh, look at it from just another perspective. Uh, As far as resources, I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, I I love, like – I don't mind the dense reading. So, like, a lot of people would be like, man, super training is horrible. It's so dense. You know what I mean? But, like, I love that dense reading that Mel Siff did uh, or the the writing that him, that he did. Um, I love all the manuals. Yeah, there you go. There's super training. <laughs> uh, There's actually yeah. – uh, I, I just put up on Twitter yesterday that there actually is a, a lot of grammar fl- – not grammar, but, like, like he, he quotes studies in the text and they're not in the big they're not in the big at the back. Oh yeah, see, well, and the 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 thing with 
I don't know if that's because a lot of his stuff is like a, a spinoff or interpretation of what the Soviets did. Mm. And maybe he didn't have access to the actual study. Maybe well, he just had access to well, the... Well, one of them is the Charlie Francis reference. And he's like, Francis 82 is like not in the back. And then no one's going for Robert O'Becker on a leisure simulation, not in the back. The other thing, too, is that... Have you read... You probably have read The Fundamentals of Special Strength Training, the 1977 edition for Perkishansky. I, I was just skimming for that. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of stuff in that that's in Super Training. It's like, this is this is from Super Training. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's the same thing. If you read, have you see, have you been exposed to facts and fallacies? I have it. I have it on my shelf, but I've only ever seen yeah. through it. So, so if you if you read facts and fallacies, it's kind of like the watered down version of super training. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you can you can go back if you if you start to cross reference, which this is something that Lou has taught me to do. Like, so instead of going on the internet, actually start to read through books. Yeah. So, because I don't know if people know this, but Lou doesn't use the computer. Yeah, I know that. So, I mean, he does all of his writing longhand. He does all of his research by going to actual books. And he's, and he's told me multiple times. And, I mean, it's really true. So it's like instead of – so, like, let's say that I have some sort of concept in my mind and I'm trying to work on this concept. I see some sort of problem, right? Instead of going on to the Internet, not that there's anything wrong with the Internet, but I'll basically start to go to all the, the books that I have. Because I'm fortunate enough that I have all these books, so super training, practice of sports, like ba- basically all the books, and you start seeing this, science, that science, practice, strength training, yeah, 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 exactly. The science, uh, science of sports training by Thomas Curse. Yeah, Thomas Curse. Yeah, so it's like I have all those books out right now because I'm kind of trying to work on something, uh, and so I'm trying to, so I'm taking my time and trying to. Uh, be able to articulate my thought process in a way that other people can understand it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So there's, so, some, there's some great resources. So, yeah, so, like, that's one of them. The other one that has really changed the way how I view life in general, not just treatment and training, is Dr. Shivers uh, has introduced me to complex systems. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if you've ever done any Dynam- studying in d- complex d- systems. D- dynamic systems theories. Yeah, so dynamic system theory. So it's like I got a decent amount of books on that. So that is actually the main topic that I read on is complex systems. That's what sync is about, yeah. how uh, emergent behavior occurs. Yeah. Um, have you enough- read – have you looked into anti-fragile? Have you got stuff? You'd like that stuff as well. Yeah, so he's actually uh, – I've read anti-fragile probably like three or four times. Yeah. I've read Black Swan. I've, I've read Fooled by Randomness. I have them actually on uh, – my phone, as far as audiobooks, I love to live. Uh, I think he does a really good job of being able to explain uh, systems perspectives on things. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Because it's always a systems problem, right? So let, even if you have a joint restriction, right, and the restriction is the joint, it's also a neurological issue because now you don't have access to the proprioceptors within the restricted range. Yeah. So it's always this constant thought process of, well, what is the issue? How does it affect this system and that system? Because the body functions as one unit, yeah. but that unit has a bunch of systems that are all feeding into it. So, I mean, I love that thought process. So there's actually two, um, I can't remember, it's the Santa Fe Institute. I took a free online course on complex systems too. Cool. Uh, which is actually, uh, was a really good uh, book. I'm trying to think, uh, uh, there's another book by, her na- Her first name is Donna, I can't remember but it's called Thinking in Systems. The lady who uh, I took the course from, she wrote a book called Complexity, which is actually really good too. Okay. 
Um, so, I mean, I love that system thought process. And so that's one of the things like, like when, like when I look at the conjugate method, I look at it from a systems perspective. Mm. So I just don't look at it from like modify the external demands. I look at it, modify the intrinsic dynamics of the individual. Yeah. So try to enable that individual to have more of a movement capacity. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Variability in the movement. Yeah, exactly. Because you can have variability in the exercises, but if you don't have variability in the body, you're, you're still loading the same tissues. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? uh, The reason I'm, the reason I'm like so agree with that is because a lot of my thought process been around that lately. And I was actually speaking to a guy who's using, uh, board Shaco's training and like a lot of Shaco stuff is into this, like uh, we were talking about, it and I was like, "This sounds like dynamic systems theory." And then my friend goes, "Exactly, that's exactly what the Russians were doing. It, w- it was to have more degrees of freedom, yeah. so that you you had more problems to solve." Like, they, so well, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, and the funny part is, in try and so now that I'm working through this process, I can't remember which manual I have. Uh, after I after we get done, I can go upstairs and, and look at it. But that's what the Soviets were talking about. This is back in the '70s, so mm. they're talking about. How is it do we maximize the potential of these high level, high level lifters, right? And it's looking intrinsically. Yeah. Because at some point you're going to breach the, uh, you know, the tra- accommodation. The threshold, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and so they were already doing it. So they, they were starting to see. So it goes back to where the failure is kind of good. Okay, these guys are starting to plateau. Why are they not doing better? Well, everything that they were doing was external. Yeah. So then that's – and this is back in the 70s. The Soviets were writing about, well, we have to look at how to internally be able to have this individual have more dynamics so that they can come up with more solutions to accomplish said tasks, which makes them much better at doing it. Absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's self, what do you say? Because and something we've touched on uh, throughout the podcast was cognitive biases. And I was talking to James Smith, the thinker, and I was like, James, I'm, re- I'm rereading Super Training. And I was like, if you speak to most people about Perkinshansky, they always talk about conscious secret system and this ability of training physical capacities. But I, but I, like, I'm like, I'm reading Super Train right now, and like, Perkinshansky was obsessed with dynamic systems theory. Like his his yeah. his mentor was Bern, it was Bernstein. Bernstein was the guy with yeah. the great degrees, yeah, the, degrees of freedom. Yes, so, exactly. And, and so then James said to me, he said, yeah, and J- James said to me, he was like, Robbie, because if you're a strength coach. And your lens is strength and condition. You're going to read super train like a strength and condition coach. He's like, if you're a biomechanist, you're going to read super train like a biomechanist. If you're a skill acquisitionist, you're going to read it like a skill acquisitionist. He's like, it's be able to dissociate from all those biases and see what's there in front of you. But there's so right. so much what you're saying well, is so much where my thought process has been with dynamic systems theory as well. And, and there's a really good book called Chaos. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's by James Glick. Yeah, I've heard of it already. Yeah. So basically, he's talking about dynamic system theory, chaos, all this other stuff, and the Soviets were studying it 30 years before we ever even were studying it in the West. Soviets. So basically, when the Soviet Union fell and we had access to the materials that the scientists were studying, they were studying that. Yeah. So we we actually used, as far as like chaos theory, dynamic system, whatever you want to call it, that whole realm of emergent behavior and self-organization, like we – like we were behind the eight ball as far as in the West, whereas the Soviets were were all into that. Yeah. Have you read? So have you read Franz Bosch's work? I know Thomas. Um, I've read. I've only read his stuff online. I don't actually have any of his books. Yeah. But I have read stuff on him in regards to you would, what exactly we're talking about right now. You, you would really like his latest book, then, Strength Training and Coordination. Like it's 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 a and it, well, let's say it's a it's a it's a Deep read, but you just said you like that type of read. So I think you would love yeah. that book. I have it actually right there somewhere. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have it here. It's all tagged, all tags it and all that. But uh, yeah. listen, John, I'm gonna have to to go. So, but but I just wanna uh, uh, last. Um, so we had resources. Last two questions. Your your top advice to all of the listeners. So it could be any life advice. Life advice. Um, it's funny. Everyone laughs when they ask that. They go, "Oh, I shouldn't ask me for life advice." It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I, that's well, a, well, I am. Yeah, I mean, I would say it goes back to. I guess kind of the whole conversation tying it all together, basically that, you know, try to acquire actual, so any knowledge that you have, try to acquire, try to actually apply it. Yeah. Actual knowledge. And then, and then if it fails, don't be discouraged by it. Be encouraged that you know that maybe that doesn't work in this setting or yeah. think about it. You know what I mean? You, I think a lot of what happens is because we have so many ways to stimulate you know, or, or we have so many things that take away from our attention yeah. that we don't really we don't really think for long periods of time on a certain issue that we're having yeah. or something that we're really trying to understand at a deeper level. And that's what I try to do. That's the reason why I don't know if you listen to the podcast where we do the flotation tanks. Yeah. I don't do the float tank for physical purposes. I do it because for an hour I'm sitting in there with pretty much no stimulus and I can just think. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's uh, um, just just going off that. Just something came to my head there about uh, failure. It's just like I'm just making note here. Failure is feedback, and it reminds me of that saying too. I I either win or I learn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a perfect quote. Yeah, exactly. But that I mean, I guess that would be my life. My life. Uh, Great stuff. Yeah. Life advice. John, last question, and then obviously gives you contact details of what you got going over at uh, at your website. Uh, so I'm over, I'm back in Columbus, Ohio. I'm going to the west side, and I'm like John Quint, and you're like, oh, Robbie, how you doing? You're the weird weird guy from Ireland. We did a great interview, and we yeah. and we stayed in touch now after the podcast. And I'm like, so John, I'm in town. I want to go for dinner. And John, I'm bringing my magical powers. You're like, what, what do you mean magical powers? I can bring dead people back alive. And you're like, yeah, that's kind of freaky, but okay, I'll go with it. So my question is, we're going to dinner, and you can bring or invite five people to this dinner, dead or alive. Who are you going to invite to dinner, and why? Five people? Yeah. Oh man, dude, I don't even know. I can. You can bring people back. Uh, yeah, anyway, dead or alive. So like you know, like Lincoln or Roosevelt or Verkhovsky or uh, Jesus. I don't care. Uh, I would say, I mean, if I wanted to be a really interesting conversation, I would have to add Lou in there. Yeah. Because uh, Lou is. He's uh, basically as nonlinear. I mean, that conversation can go anywhere. And uh, I would say just because, I mean, my main interest is in training. I mean, I do the treatment perspective of it. But, I mean, I would have loved to have conversations with Mel Sif. Mm. I mean, he was a good friend of Lou, and Lou talks very highly of him. I like all of his readings. Um, and, I mean, I think he would have – I just think he would have a good conversation. Uh, I would invite Tom, uh, Tom Barry from Westside. And then I would probably have my training partner there, Seth Shaw, and then uh, Dr. Shivers. Right. And I think, right. I think that would be a, a good conversation with all of us because we all, have, we all have somewhat of the same process, but everyone has enough experience that it would, it would cause for some interesting conversations. So I only have, Both I only have, to, bring, only have to bring one dead person back. That's, that's an easy thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, John, finally, where can people uh, contact you, know more about you, what have you got going on, what, what are some plans you've got in the future? I see you have some um, really interesting things going on over at the website. 
Yeah, so my website is my name John Quint NMT dot com. Uh, so basically, I try to publish blog posts uh, every once in a while, but the majority of time I spend is basically practical application right now. So I spend a lot of my time treating people. I keep a really busy schedule in regards to that, just because kind of that's my I'm trying to uh, get better at treatment as far as now and then mm. be able to see how that treatment actually applies mm. in an athletic type setting. Um, I know that we're talking at Westside about doing some more seminars. Uh, so I talk at those seminars and I don't know. That's pretty much it, man. I, I kind of keep a low profile. Cool. Uh, but I see the website you're, you're hoping to have some like ebooks and potential webinars and some content coming up. So that, that, that'd be something for people to keep their eyes out for. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and they can sign up for. I think I think you have a subscription email too. They can sign up for, can they? Yeah. So basically, if if you like my blog post, you can sign up for, it and then you just get cool. an email directly into there. Great stuff. And there's some, there is some great posts up there. And what I like, I actually prefer people who would blog uh, less, but when they do blog, it's great content. And I just kind of I get that feeling off you. Like you you feel uh, you know you only feel compelled to write when when you feel it's something worth of value. So I like that about the blog posts you've had up so far. And I'll put all that in the show notes, by the way, John, so your website and all your contact details. So, John, just stay on for, like, one more minute, and I'll say goodbye to you offline. So, guys, that was okay. an absolute, like, 90 minutes are gone by, John. It just flies. So I just want to thank John Quinn so much for he took uh, time out of his Sunday, which for most people is family day, and John has a, a significant other. So I, I really appreciate that, and, and tell her uh, I really appreciate that as well, giving, giving, giving me up for 90 minutes. Um, so for now, guys, for everyone listening, uh, take care. I'll talk to everyone soon and stay strong. Thank you.